independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. To be honest, we need more listener donations to be able to keep this show alive because, as you can see, we no longer do product advertisements and... We really want to keep it this way because we don't want to sell you things you don't need. And more importantly, we knew we needed to shed the incentive of appealing to corporate sponsors so that we can maintain our very critical lenses and continue to question a lot of mainstream ideas and big green narratives. And if every listener chipped in just $2 a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today to be a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com slash support or at patreon.com slash greendreamer. There's a few things that are more delightful than stepping onto a sandy beach, I think, and feeling cradled gently by that sand or stepping onto a, you know, a field of, of grass or, or even walking down the trail and just having your feet liberated. So one kind of, I guess, catchy way of saying this is to, instead of being head over heels, to be heels overhead. Today we are speaking with Dr. Gavin Van Horn, the executive director at the Center for Humans and Nature, who also leads the book series for the Center for Humans and Nature Press. He is the co-editor with Robin Wall Kimmer and John Hausdorfer of the five-volume series Kinship, Belonging in a World of Relations. He's also the author of The Way of Coyote, Shared Journeys in the Urban Wilds. To begin here, Gavin expands upon how he names our crisis of disconnection as a state of orphanhood. I use the term orphanhood in the essay that I contribute to the kinship volumes. It's in volume two, which is about place. And when I am speaking about orphanhood, I don't mean actual human family orphanhood, although that can be a part of it. What I'm getting at is more of an existential feeling of orphanhood. What you said, that we feel deeply this sense of separation this sense of disconnect or disjointedness, that we know that something is amiss, that there's something not quite right about our relations, that we're, we feel adrift in the world. And I think that that's a product of, can be a product of a lot of things. I mean, certainly not everybody is, that's not everybody's feeling. But I think that there are a lot of people that for a number of reasons, we can point towards, you know, the hyper-individualism of, of Western culture, the way that we're taught to compete with one another rather than cooperate. I'm painting in broad strokes here, but you know some general tendencies of, of this worldview that many of us inherit is that we are apart from other creatures, that human beings are separate, that we are, and usually the implication is that we're superior 
in some way that we are atop a hierarchy rather than within a circle or around a, a table, so to speak, you know, a big giant potluck. Rather, we are different to such a degree from other creatures that we are different in kind from them, that we're somehow there's a, there's a firm wall of separation between ourselves and other creatures. And from that follows, I think, a sense of orphanhood that we, we've literally been uprooted, you know, to use the title of one of your podcasts from the land, our land relationships, which in my mind are some of the most, if not the most fundamental relationships in our lives. So if we feel connected and rooted in place, if our identity is established in a sense of belonging along with and sharing our places with many, many different types of organisms, and that place is in some way alive to us and not only gives to us, which all places do in terms of our sustenance, uh, the breath we breathe. But if we are in some way giving back, if we're in reciprocity with that place, then that sense of orphanhood dissipates and in its place comes a sense of belonging. So in my essay, I talk about the ways that orphanhood was somewhat prominent in my life because I came from a settler colonial background ancestrally in the very recent founding of Oklahoma, which was a state that I think gained statehood in 1907. So very recent, right? Just a little over 100 years ago. And the settlement of that state included a land grab, essentially. During an event called the Land Run, people lined up and a gun was fired and you know they ran and claimed a piece of land as though land could be owned, as though the land was mere property. And I'm, you know, by virtue of being born in Oklahoma, in some way I'm the inheritor of that kind of settler colonial worldview that simply thinks that land is a resource from which we can extract things that we don't have to be in reciprocity with, that it doesn't ask anything from us. It's not a gift-giving relationship. It's one of a forcible seizure. And that creates orphans, land orphans. And so there's that specific sort of example and experience, but I think it, it can be more broadly generalized, as I said before, to a feeling that I think a lot of people have of that, what's wrong? Why do I feel so separate? Or why do I feel so adrift? And I think a lot of times it can be traced back to that sense of, of having been uprooted or participated in the uprooting of others, not just humans, but all kinds of creatures that have been displaced by this colonial obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. And we're going to dive deeper into all of this as well. But I guess part of the challenge is that some people do feel this sense of being disconnected and uprooted. And at the same time, a lot of people may be so disassociated that they don't even recognize or can name that sense of being uprooted. So they don't even recognize that something is wrong because a lot of people have been so disassociated that we cannot see that disconnection. 
And I know we've explored this briefly in a separate conversation for Uprooted, but your invitation has been for us to understand kinning as a verb, perhaps in part to counter this feeling of orphanhood. So at the core, what do you mean when you talk about kinship and what might listening more deeply with our entire bodies and seeing ourselves not as individualized separate entities, but more so as porous beings with our skin as membranes interacting with these broader ecosystems. What could this look like and lead us towards? Yeah, well, there, yeah, there's a lot there. So I'll start with what you began with there, which is this idea of kinning, that kinning, that being kin is not a static thing, that it is an action, it is a practice, it is something we do when we engage with the world around us. And so I think something that's important to bear in mind is, is it might be a common thing to walk out of our back doors or front doors or whatever and see the world as though it were part of a, as though we were part of a, a play, like that everything was just a backdrop, like a painted scene that we were making our way through. And that can be reinforced to us in strange ways. I mean, I know that when I lived in Chicago, there's walking through downtown, there was that feeling sometimes of just being in the midst of this chaos of, of human bodies and that I saw so much humanity that if I didn't look up at the sky or down toward the cracks in the pavement or out toward the river, then it can begin to become a very sort of self-reflexive thing in a negative way where we feel like, well, humans are the only species in town. But that's not the case, of course, you know. So when we are out and about, it's important to remember that this isn't simply a monologue between ourselves and a, or a one-directional flow between ourselves and the, and the world around us. But there is actually the potential for a dialogue if we are receptive to it. And that involves us not just venturing out into the world, in a way that we're just grasping what we need, <laughs> but being open. And as you said, maybe think of our own porosity, you know, the way that our skin is simply a membrane, which is what it actually is. You know, it keeps us bound together enough, you know, so that we can think of ourselves as individuals, but it's also a constant exchange of, of information between ourselves and and the world around us. And so in a sense, it becomes, sometimes I think of it as a, a drum head. It's not where we end, it's where it's the medium through which we can begin to receive, the medium through which we can be played, if you will, by the world around us. And that just requires, I think, subtle shifts of perception, where we are thinking in terms of, or where we're allowing ourselves to shift into a feeling of of not just what's going on in our own, you know, between our ears, our own monkey mind, but often our thoughts are churning away. And if we can let go of some of that need or that that wild churning of mind and settle into a presence among others, then we can gift our attention to the world. And we say, you know, in, in common, our colloquialism is that we give our attention to something. And I think that that underscores that reciprocal relationship 
that we are after when we're talking about kinning, that when we attend, we're giving of ourselves to others. We're focusing in such a way we're being present to another being. And so that's not so abstract. You know, I mean, you can think about that in any relationship or in any caring or intimate relationship that we're in with another human being, you know, for it to truly grow and develop and for us to deepen that relationship, we can't always simply be the ones who are speaking. <laughs> you know, we are, we can't simply be the ones who are always demanding what we want, but to be present to another means in some ways you're giving away part of your yourself to that other and that you're both potentially growing or flourishing because of that. Mm. And to make this feel even more tangible, I know you talk about this practice of attentive walking. And of course, everyone will have a different way of engaging more deeply with the world. But what do you specifically do or what senses do you try to really tune into more deeply or amplify when you're striving to engage with this practice of kinning? One of the things I do is I do, I, as you say, I do a lot of walking and, and, and that's just a matter of slowing my pace down and being open. But I also will sometimes take my shoes off if I can, if it's safe to do so, because there's something very special about the tactile sense of my skin against the earth's skin. And it forcibly slows me down. If I go too fast, you know, then I'm likely to trip or, you know, cut my foot or whatever. And so the idea here is, again, I mentioned like a perception shift. So rather than thinking my way into relationship, I'm feeling my way into relationship rather than it being a brain-based activity, I'm starting not at the top of my head, but at the bottom of my feet and feeling the world as it responds to my, the pressure of my foot, you know, of my touch. And then that touch is returned. And there's a few things that are more delightful than stepping onto a sandy beach, I think, and feeling cradled gently by that sand or stepping onto a, you know, a field of, of grass or, or even walking down the trail and just having your feet liberated. So one kind of, I guess, catchy way of saying this is to, instead of being head over heels, to be heels overhead and to privilege your sense of touch. And I think that shifts the weight of an overactive mind back into the body and what mm -hmm. our full body mind experiences. Yeah. And we, of course, encourage everyone to experiment with how they can engage more deeply with the world around them as well and take inspiration from some of the things that you've tried and practice yourself. And as we talk about this, what comes up for me is that there seems to be this so what question, because I do know a lot of people who don't really have an inherent interest in spiritually connecting to place and listening to the land in this deeper way, who might feel content seeing and practicing quote-unquote connection in the more superficial ways, 
I feel that modern society encourages people to. Or maybe, as I mentioned earlier, the challenge of some people just having been so disassociated that they don't even recognize the state of having been uprooted or metaphorically orphaned. Mm. So just living inside of this socially constructed reality rather than seeing the matrix we've been placed into and having an interest in breaking free from it to reconnect with what might be more real and meaningful and truly life enhancing. So it just kind of feels like a vicious cycle that we're maybe on right now and need to break out of. But what do you think has been the cost of our collective capacities to listen more deeply in this way? having been compromised through a wide variety of ways that you touched on earlier? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear to see that the trajectory we're headed on is is one that is, I think you just used the word, did you say life enhancing? Yes. So <laughs> life depriving would be, I guess, the counterpart to that, or life destroying even stronger. We see it in the way that we've politically have dragged our feet on, you know, climate change has been known. The warnings have been shot up into the, the, you know, into the sky, you know, in bright fireworks for decades now. And some progress, if you will, has been made, some slow movement. But we know, you know, if we trust the IPCC and, and all the warning signs that not enough has been done because we still are, are living in such a way as a society, as, as nation states, as to jeopardize the future of our descendants, that we're still weighing the short-term and immediate as more important, whether it's the you know quarterly profits or the next political cycle, that things seem to have sped up to such a degree that future values are discounted over what is immediately obtainable and there are fewer checks in for avarice and and greed and the fewer incentives or rewards for cooperative behavior that would lead to mutual flourishing than you know than we need in our current systems of, of governance but i think that I mean, I think, you know, it's hard to speak to specifically your question of, you know, what if people feel so dissociated that they can't, that they don't recognize, they're like fish that don't recognize the waters that they're, they're swimming in, or that there would be an alternative if the waters that they're swimming in are so polluted that they, they don't recognize the difference between health, wholeness, and, and what would be what's detrimental to their well-being. And that's a difficult question to answer because I think it's so, you know, it's so depends on so many factors, you know, who's in, who are the people in, in someone's lives, you know, when does a book reach them at a certain time or a, you know, or a movie or, you know, when does the light bulb go on? I can't say for any individual what that is, but I'll go back to the phrase you use, which is life enhancing. And I think that there is probably a recognition of when you're working against your own interests, your own, you know, full flourishing as a person. And probably a, there are moments of where the sun breaks through the clouds and you see that, that uh, you feel deeply in your bones, something that is life enhancing. You feel deeply connected. You feel that sense of belonging. And 
you don't have to suddenly become Gandhi, you know, or, or the Dalai Lama or a wise guru. You know, you just have to take whatever the next step is toward that feeling. So, like I said, it's hard to, like, without having, like, a specific sort of case study or something in mind, you know, it's hard to say what any particular remedy would be because it would be different for different folks depending upon what their interest is, where their sense of wonder is stoked. But I I think that it, that it's one of those things that's sort of cumulative, right? Like, I'm not the same person I was 30 years ago as I am now. And I'm not the same person I will be in, you know, 20 years. And a lot of this unfolding of the folded lie, so to speak, to borrow a phrase from Head Abbey, of the social constructs that we see around us that have, have led to and are leading to a life-denying state of being, that takes some time for most of us to recognize those things and to find a way to begin to look at them with some amount of crit with a with a critical eye and even longer usually to say well to ask that question that you just asked which is okay i recognize what it's like denying so what where do i go from here and as i said before that can be a number of things but that's why i find it most helpful to start with what's closest to us which might be our next step walking it might be our next breath recognizing that we share reciprocity with you know trees who give us our oxygen we in turn giving them carbon dioxide but to start with what's closest to home i think is most important because that's not something where we have to say well you know tomorrow i'm going to do everything differently and i'm going to make this huge life move to you know wherever because i need to go here or do that and sometimes those kinds of radical um, breaks you know are important but i think it's probably more important that we find a daily practice that can reinforce these things to reinforce that sense of kinning that sense of kinship and build from those those everyday practices well at the heart of all of this is really the understanding that our worldviews and how we relate to one another and the world really matters. So I want to pose this question. In our past conversation with farmer Rishi, he brought up his perspectives that even the very idea of nature itself reinforces a view of separation and the binary of human and nature, given especially that officially, I think, in the dictionary, in Oxford Dictionary, nature is defined pretty much as all forms of life other than humans and what humans create. So as someone who leads humans and nature, I feel like you've probably had to think about this binary quite a bit. So where have you landed on today in terms of how you view the duality of things like city and the wild or natural and artificial or nature and society and so forth? I think binaries can't help but be misrepresentative of reality. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sometimes we need them as a place to start out, you know, as a place to kind of define our terms. But when it comes to, it's really interesting that you said the Oxford English Dictionary continues to list nature as that which is non-human, because I think that's that's reflective of what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, which is this idea that humans are somehow apart and oftentimes thought of metaphorically as above other types of life, which is 
patently false. You know, we're completely dependent, completely a vulnerable being among other vulnerable beings that share this planet, that have a shared evolutionary history. So I think those distinctions drawn between the natural natural and the artificial, the wild and the urban, you know, the male and the female, like all of all of these binaries are in some ways like spectrums. All of them partake in one another. And so when I think of humans in nature, I mean we can use those terms as just common words, understanding their their limits as well, and understanding what they disclose as well as what they close off from our perception when we use them. So we've oftentimes, you know, I mean, obviously the organization that I work for is called the Center for Humans and Nature. And we oftentimes have kind of joked about, you know, how that it sets up a false binary, even though we all kind of intuitively know what we're getting at there. We're talking about human relationships with the larger world of which we are a part, you know, but I guess maybe that's the key is that we recognize that this is the world of which we are, we are embedded. We are a part of, of its, its health and well-being, or, or conversely, it's, you know, the unraveling that we see in some places around us. And so we're intimately connected. And in that sense, we are nature. I mean, we are not, and to some degree, we, we can't even, shouldn't even conceive of ourselves as, as individuals, you know, going back to the porosity, you know, I mean, we are, you know, Wilson's phrase is that we are bacterial ecosystems and the preponderance of our cells are bacterial uh, in the human body. Mm. So we consist of many kingdoms of life in one body that we oftentimes think of as simply on the end of the branch of the leaf of the, the kingdom of animalia. No, we're connected to all this all those other kingdoms and we wouldn't be here without them. And right. not just historically, but right now, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're desperately dependent on them for our continued existence and, and, and possible flourishing. Yeah. So I don't so, know if that clarifies <laughs> or muddies the waters. <laughs> of course. It's always good to keep mudding the waters, of course. And yeah, to recognize <laughs> that we are both at the same time, we are ecosystems and we also make up ecosystems. Exactly. It's What do they call it? It's like Russian dolls, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to take all of this even deeper, I know you share that you no longer really use words such as natural and artificial, and you do see them as being more porous now. And this reminds me of our past conversations with both Vanessa Andreotti and Bio Akomolafe, in which we talked about how we often give too much weight to language. So I'd be curious to hear how your relationship with language and with words have evolved over time, and particularly why you felt called to let go of naming and categorizing and using words to define and dictate how we relate to the world. Yeah, that's a gosh. Bio is incredible. He, he blows my mind when I hear him <laughs> talk. I mean, gosh, what a talk about a you know a person that can talk about hybridity and you know amalgamations and and you know all the different ways that things are mixed up and muddled together. Talk about muddying the waters in a very productive way. He does. So the limit. I mean, I think what we have to recognize is that words, human words, are only one type of communication. They're only one type of language. And most of us can't speak even multiple languages. I mean, 
God bless the people who can, but you know, like, and that limits our ways of seeing our ways of interacting and engaging with the world. So there needs to be a sort of cautionary note that when we, when we use words and names and we have to, in some ways, communicate with other people and that enables us to do so. So it's a great blessing in that sense. It can be a bridge to understanding, but words can also just as easily be a barrier to understanding. They can constrain and constrict and cut off what we are naturally or that we might otherwise be able to see or perceive because we've we've looked at something, named it, and then let that define that other being to us. So the problem sometimes I think that we what what we tried to raise in the kinship book series was that the English language is so full of uh, it's such a noun heavy language that the tendency is to look at the world around us and think of, of it being comprised of objects. But there are just many different types of containers and things and inert matter around us because we have all these nouns to describe the world, whereas in a lot of indigenous languages, a lot of place-based languages, they're more verb-dependent or verb-enacted, if you will. And um, Robin Wall Kimmer, one of the co-editors, talks about this as a grammar of animacy, that it emphasizes the the active animate characteristics of uh, the world the places that the creatures and the things and we can easily see this reflected i guess one easy way to see this reflected in our language usage usage is that in english it's still the convention to call other animals it's it you know s and use the pronoun it like oh look at it run look at it fly Look at what it's doing, you know. Look at it. Look at it. Wrap itself around that around that tree, or sit upon that stone. And by using that kind of language, that kind of pronoun language, we essentially have characterized the world as full of objects, as I said, and not subjects. So they are simply like building blocks, almost within our path that we can choose to use or not use. We can choose to exploit or not exploit, but they don't call for forward anything from us in terms of relationship that would be anything approaching a, a two-way or reciprocal relationship. Whereas there are complex, more complicated verb-based names for other creatures, beings, and you know, rivers, mountains, stones. In, in various indigenous languages that remind us that we don't have to frame the world that way, but language reflects our worldview oftentimes, but it can also just reinforce it. So if we can look at the ways in which our languages that we're using, our words that we're using, look at them and understand their limitations, we can actively work to revise those languages, to revise the ways that we speak about the world the way we speak it into existence. So in my life, it's been very helpful to acknowledge that like a first stage of relationship might be naming in the language I know. You know, it might be learning the Latin binomials for other creatures. If that's helpful, it might be learning their common names, which are often quite, uh, can be really interesting. You know, there's a flower nearby called Tidy Tips that I've, ran into the other day that I, is, is the most beautiful 
little daisy-like flower. And there was a, another flower called the fairy lantern on the path that I was on the other day. And I thought, well, they, they really got that one right, you know, because <laughs> it looks like a little lantern lighting up the path to what will be a magical place down the road. And, uh, that's a good That's a good name right there. So there are ways that if we don't have names for anything, then everything can look just like a big mishmash. Like we don't distinguish anything around us. We don't recognize that there are different ways of being and thriving, different, incredible, just to stick with plants, you know, so many different ways to be a plant person and all the different ways that they utilize the sun for food and the different geometries and the ways they attract insects and all of the, all those things. So it can be helpful because we can look at a landscape and it's not just undifferentiated to us when we have names for these things. And that's how we get to know things. If I wanted to, if I met you at a, at a conference that say that we were at, and I didn't know your name, you probably, you might not stand out to me in the crowd, but if I said, Oh, that's Kamea, I met her at lunch you know, then I, out of the crowd, you would stand out to me. Mm-hmm. So naming can be helpful in that sense. It can direct our attention to what we give our attention to. But then I think there is a point where it's helpful as an exercise to sometimes leave the names behind, to sometimes walk into a place or a landscape and not try to name, because to name is sometimes to, to it can lead to acting as though we know the fullness of that thing that or that creature or that being so by naming sometimes naming can lead to simply like oh i've seen that before i'm familiar with that i don't need to know that you know that's just uh backgrounds you know again and so it can be a a helpful thing i think to to also walk in and and to let go of some of the naming that we might do and to again just be present in a new or different way than we might be used to and yeah. that that can be a powerful way of relating where we don't think that we have um, exhausted the possibilities of another being because we know it it's or theirs or she or he's name, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is sort of a yes and scenario in which we both recognize the value <laughs> in language as a tool. And at the same time, recognize Mm -hmm. its limitations as merely a tool, because I do think having a more dynamic and loose relationship with language is critical, because we often forget that we use Mm -hmm. language categories and words in attempts to understand a complex and dynamic world that cannot properly be reduced into human language and concepts. And yet we often base our entire realities and societal rules off of that limiting language that we use to try to make sense of the more complex and dynamic world. So, Uh you know, we can, Uh broadly speaking, tend to feel in any moment very strongly about something, but hearing such incredible minds and souls as yourself and other people we've had on the show before having a more porous relationship with language and allowing your perspectives on things to evolve over time really invites us to become more humble and, you know, being okay with feeling rooted in something right now in particular stances and viewpoints. And at the same time, realizing that the world is complex and the grounds we're rooted in are still constantly shifting and moving. And so to all of this, it leads me to consider this challenge that we seem to be in right now, 
that those with perhaps the strongest human ego and sense of supremacy and desire to dominate and control, and those with the most, I feel, disoriented and disassociated values of life seem to be the ones who have been most interested in accumulating capital and oppressive power and control and resources. And those with perhaps healthier and more connected and humble relationships with community and with the land are the ones who haven't been that interested in, in accumulating these reductive forms of resources and things that may be life compromising. And so in this socially constructed world, which values, you know, the more reductive forms of value over others, a lot of people who maybe have healthier relationships with community and with the land tend to have less quote-unquote power. Mm. So I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just uh, (laughs) something I've been thinking about, and I'm curious what comes up for you as you think about this difficult place that we seem to be stuck in right now. No, I mean, you've hit on the crux of, of our social dysfunction. I think, right? The most underpaid people are in some ways the most valuable to our the health of our society. I'm thinking of teachers, I'm thinking of social workers, I'm thinking of you know, healthcare people and um and people willing to fight for social and environmental justice. They're often compensated the least, you know. And the people that are willing or are willing and able to accumulate the most are often pathologically rewarded for their behavior and i don't know i mean that's the that's the you know the short and sorry answer that i have i don't know you know what the social mechanisms would be that would best inhibit the proclivity to reward bad behavior uh and by bad behavior i mean behavior that undermines the social and ecological fabric of of our world. How do we keep, it's a perennial human problem. You know, I just think that some cultures and societies did it much better than the one we live in currently in the United States at taking those who might be prone to egoistic, you know, pathological behavior and bringing them back into community. You know, having the sorts of things that would reintegrate them into you know, <laughs> loving community relationship or give them a way to channel their energies in ways that were, you know, healthy for society as a whole. But really it's, it's, it's a question that kind of, you know, I guess that I, that I don't have great answers for and that I, you know, I, I'm working through the questions myself. So I don't, I don't have any, uh, I wish I did, but I don't have a big, you know, <laughs> nice tidy bow on, on a way that we, we get there, get to that place where we're looking out for the collective interests rather than for whoever dies with the most toys wins. Yeah, certainly no silver bullet answers. And these are hard questions that I think we all need to slow down and sit with in order to have the consciousness and awareness shifts that perhaps the earth is calling us into. And we are nearing the end of our conversation, but whether related to what we just talked about or anything else we talked about today or otherwise, what else do you feel called to share in this moment that I didn't get to ask you about? I would say as far as like a little practice to take out into into the world, 
that might counter the sort of individualism and individualistic thinking we might be prone to. That something that I've been kind of thinking about lately as I walk is rather than thinking that I'm walking, think, you know, we walk, we laugh, we hum, you know, that all these, all these things, these other, what we're doing as we move through a landscape is actually a collective one. And thinking with that kind of we language instead of I language, I think can be a, a good way to shift perception and beyond that i would just say to whoever's listening you know i mean follow the the mystery and the magic and the wonder and i think that that will steer you in the right direction <laughs> don't wait any longer because the night is drawing in and the sun's getting stronger while the ice is wearing thin Come out of the shadows So your voice can be received Don't stand on the sidelines Come fight for the air that you breathe Cause we all have the power to change Yeah, we all What's been an impactful book that you've read or publication that you follow? Well, I do a lot of reading. So the thing that pops to mind most recently is I read a book by geologist Marsha Bjornrud called Timefulness, about how to pay attention to deep time, earth time, and to know that the past is in our present, embedded in our present. And it's really helpful to think in those like large earthen scales because it's... Um, it's humbling, but it's also, it can be potentially an incredible, an incredible way to make you feel a part of a larger earthen story. And I want to add one other book to that, that I read a couple of, uh, maybe a year or two ago, uh, the entangled life by Merlin Sheldrake about mycorrhizal networks and all that that's being discovered about the ways that fungus communicates to, to other trees, to one another. And the takeaway message of that book was it really dissolved my sense of being an individual, really kind of blew my mind. <laughs> so there's two book recommendations for you. <laughs> what are some personal mottos, mantras, or practices you engage with to stay grounded? Well, we already, we already mentioned walking and uh, how we might better think of ourselves as, as earthlings, as, as we's instead of I's. I'd say another helpful practice is, as human beings, we rely a lot upon our sense of sight. But sights can be a kind of reaching out into the world and, and grasping of the world in a way. So I think it's really helpful to shift, if you can, to other sensory experiences, you know, what the smell of the air is around you or, or what the touch, the feel of the wind is across your cheek or across your palms of your hands. And, you know, we raise that idea of being porous and also the idea of the body, the skin being a drumhead. And I think that's a good way to sense that is to try to set aside vision in favor of receptivity through other senses 
I think it's um, really a great way to shift perception and awareness of our multiple level relationships with with the world. Mm. And what are your greatest sources of inspiration right now? Hmm, biggest inspiration is being where I am, I think, because I moved with my family in July last year and to the central coast of California. And I am almost daily overwhelmed with being here. It, there's just um, not only is there are there like new, you know, just like when I moved to Chicago and there are new non-human neighbors to get to know, like there's definitely this kind of getting to know you period where I'm just kind of reveling in all the different, you know, from, from the sea otters and pelicans and sand crabs uh, and curlews on the shoreline to in these hills, you know, from, you know, tarantulas to, you know, sycamore trees to all the flowers that are blooming right now. And so just getting to know this place has been my biggest source of inspiration at the moment, a reminder of these kinships I share with with all all these different beings. And like I said, it's kind of a getting to know you period. I'm hoping that that'll start to shift into a more mutual, you know, more where I can uh, give something back, where I can be in a deeper relationship with this place. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but you can engage more deeply with Gavin's work from his website, www.storyforager.com. Gavin, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us here and all the thought evolution and perspective shifts that you've personally made. What final words of wisdom do you have for us here as Green Dreamers as we wrap up? I think I, I may have said it before, but kinship is as close as your next footfall. It's as close as your next breath. It's an affirmation of your belonging to your place and to this planet. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and counterculture conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we do also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Calliopeia Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Power to Change by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gon. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>